California is often defined by its landscape, whether that's acres of farmland that compose the nation's most productive agricultural county, miles and miles of coastline, mountains, valleys, or deserts, land and our relationship to it is often at the heart of statewide conversations about topics as diverse as tourism, food justice, and housing inequity. But what about the topic of land back? It's a seemingly buzzworthy term that folks may recognize from social media to community organizers. But beyond its social buzz, it's important for us to remember. The concept of land back and the the hashtag land back has been used for the last maybe six years. While these are very important callings in the movement right now, they're actually based in a long history of land reclamation and native rights that has existed for a very, very long time. So CalAg Roots is digging into the concept and the practice of land back, because how can any valid conversation about land in what is now called California take place without discussing the legacy of settler colonialism and the long history of native resistance to its ongoing practice? And we're going to discuss this topic through a new interview series we're calling The Well. Think of The Well as an audio version of a gathering place, like a barbershop, a kitchen table, a front porch, a watering hole, or a well. Where each episode, we have an in-depth conversation with the scholars, artists, organizers, growers, and community members who are making an impact on how we view and interact with the natural world in California. Basically, we're talking to dope people who are doing dope things. So I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the Calac Roots podcast. Calac Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the first episode in a multi-part series of The Well, which focuses on land back, and it features my recent conversation with Dr. Brittany Arona, Assistant Professor of American Indian Studies at San Diego State University. Dr. Arona, who is Hoopa, a Hoopa Valley tribe, is a scholar with deep knowledge of the subject. Here's a brief rundown of her bio. Dr. Arona received her PhD in Native American Studies with a designated emphasis in human rights from UC Davis, where she also earned her MA in Native American Studies. A trained historian, she holds a BA in history and an MA in public history. Dr. Arona's research and teaching focuses on indigenous human rights, federal Indian law, environmental justice, tribal water rights, traditional ecological knowledge, visual sovereignty, California Indians, and decolonization. She's received support and funding for her research from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the American Council for Learned Societies. And before joining San Diego State, Dr. Arona worked for several federal, local, and state government agencies, including California State Parks, Department of Toxic Substances Control, the State Indian Museum, the Office of Historic Preservation, and the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. You know, um, I was looking at your your bio because I know you're you're a new assistant professor of American Indian Studies at San Diego State University, and so I was interested in one just hearing you know what does that title mean? What what are the types of things that you're teaching in that department? What kinds of research are you interested in? 
Yeah, so um, I just joined the faculty at San Diego State this year. So I'm in my actually second week or third week of um, the position. So I was hired essentially as um, their California Indian historian, me and um, Dr. Olivia Chilcote, who's a member of San Luis Rey Band of Mission Indians. Um, she's also a California expert, um, but it's funny, we were talking about it and she was like, well, I'm Southern California and you're kind of Northern California. So I am Northern California from far nor Northwestern California um, in the Hoopa Valley. So we kind of cover the state <laughs> in that way uh, through California Indian history, uh, California Indian studies, American Indian studies. And so broadly we look at the life culture um, of American Indians in the United States. So we're focused mainly domestically on uh, United States issues, but we also look of course at um, indigenous movements around the world as well. But the focus is on the United States and the issues that um, have occurred here in this country. My work focuses mainly on indigenous environmental justice in California. So my expertise is in water issues, water rights, land rights, uh, visual sovereignty. So I have uh, done a lot of study on California Indian artists and their contributions to indigenous environmental justice in the state of California and broadly the American West. Hmm. You know, how, how did you personally come to this work? You know, both just as you were developing who you are as a person, as a, as a young person in the world, um, I also saw in your bio, you know, the the different federal and local and state governmental agencies that you've you've worked for. You know, how how did this path of yours prepare you for what you're doing and thinking about today? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I'm a member of the Hoopa Valley Tribe in northwestern California. We're located in Humboldt County, about an hour east of Arcata Eureka, where Cal Poly Humboldt is, and um, which is a pretty rural place in general. But my family, um, we spent my whole childhood going up to Hoopa. I grew up in Sacramento, California. And um, we spent a lot of time on the reservation with my grandfather, who I was very close to. Um, and we just spent summers there. And I grew up around the Hoopa people and Hoopa culture. So I grew up with um, an understanding of Hoopa values, you know, our culture and our traditions. And so I grew up around him and my family, my extended family that lives up there too. Um, we weren't what you would call a traditional family. Like we weren't a dance family where, you know, they certain families put on our ceremonial dances up in Hoopa. We weren't um, that family, but I spent a lot of time on the river um, and I spent a lot of time talking to my grandfather about stories of his life. And he was a educator. So he spent his whole life in American Indian education. Um, he was really involved in a lot of education movements in California itself and knew a lot of the many, many great native activists um, like Awok Frank Lapina and um, he walked David Risling. And so he kind of came into being in that era. And so I talked to him a lot about what it meant to be Hoopa. And he really taught me a lot about that. 
And so I, in, in being in that, that life, I was raised around the river and we're from a river tribe. So we're, we, the Hoopa Valley is in the Trinity River, which is the largest tributary of the Klamath River. Um, and which, which extends out into the Klamath River Basin, which is from the Pacific Ocean all the way up into um, South Central Oregon. And so this riverway is really important to many, many tribes and including the Hoopa Valley tribe. And so I grew up um, around the river and understanding the importance of the river and also understanding those um, living beings in the river and that the river itself is a living being. Um, so I grew up to respect the river and had, you know, just spent a lot of time in the valley. 2002, there was a fish kill that devastated the ecology of the Klamath River Basin. And I remember when it happened because everybody was devastated. You could see salmon on the uh, waterways, uh, dead salmon. So it was about upwards of 80,000 um, mature Chinook and Coho salmon that died on the river um, because of these conditions um, that were perpetuated both by farming interest and these longstanding water development interest in the state and in, in the state of Oregon and California. And right after that happened, there was this huge push from tribes in the region, Yurok, Karuk, Hoopa, um, Klamath River tribes to um, protect the waterway. And a part of that protection came from doing advocacy against the owners of the dams, which were originally uh, Scottish power and then um, Pacific Corps. So I, I was a young person when that happened. And so it was always in the back of my mind when I went to school. And then I was really interested in history ever since I was a little kid. So I went into history at uh, Cal Poly Humboldt, then went into public history at Sac State with the full intention of becoming like a museum and cultural resources specialist. Mm -hmm. So I went into that field. Um, and I had some success in that field. And that field ended up taking me into state government where I worked for environmental agencies such as the Department of Toxic Substances Control. So I started doing work with other communities of color um, who were experiencing environmental racism through um, hazardous waste management. And I worked with tribes throughout the state with that. And then I went into California State Parks where I was their tribal affairs program manager and did work on um, land return, um, co-management agreements, gathering policies, and then repatriation. So I really got a lot of professional experience through state work in doing that. And throughout the whole thing, I did my PhD at UC Davis um, with a designated emphasis in uh, human rights. So my career has really taken a lot of twists and turns and now I'm in a relatively new career of academia and doing this work at San Diego State. Do you see um, overlaps between both like your work, governmental agency work and academia? Um, and then also are there important distinctions? Yeah, I think there are a lot of, you know, overlaps between the academic work I do and the work I did at the state. So the state was really about the doing, right? Like, so you're enacting policies, you're developing relationships, you're going to meetings, you're 
enacting projects. So a lot of that was a project-based work space. Um, but through my academic work, a lot of it is also critiquing the ways in which the state continues to perpetuate environmental racism through environmental projects. Um, and so you see this overlap between, not that I you know, perpetuated that, I don't think, but you see these overlaps between the state and state actors and what you know, they're trying to initiate through policies um, that the state legislature and the govern governor enacts in you know, their, their legislative and executive order processes. And then the act of doing that as you're a worker. And then in academia, you're critiquing that and looking at the long history of how that has impacted environmental injustice. And something that I really recognized when I was working for the state is that there's not a lot of um, looking back, right? Yeah. Like I found that, um, so it's interesting to be in a place that you're studying and then also like doing the work of um, trying to push environmental justice in a system that's not inherently built for that. Mm -hmm. um, so I became very, very interested in the ways that the state has formed to remove Native people off their land and how Native people have resisted that and continue to resist that through um, movement building and through pushing on the state. And that's a long history that began um, with colonization into the area. So does that make sense? Like I was just, yeah. it, it's an interesting, now I'm like fully in academia. So I'm really like looking and going back into archival records and reading through government policies and documents that relate to like land and water uh, dispossession. You know, before we get into the weeds of like your deep archival study and the things that you've come to, to know and find out, um, you know, the, the theme of this of this set of interrelated interviews is land back. And so that's a term that might be new to some folks, or it's one that some people may consider like quote unquote buzzworthy and it's being taken up in all kinds of ways that might be conflating it with ideas that it's not related to. So, you know, in, in service of trying to have a deeper, um, more um, relevant understanding of this, of the term, could you, you know, break down, give us a primer of, of, the idea and the practice of land back since it's a concept that you actually discuss in your, your classes at San Diego State? So land back actually as a term is relatively new, um, maybe dates back into 2016. And so there's been this huge push within environmental movements in Canada and the United States uh, to return land back to native like indigenous holding. But the idea of land back has existed since colonization began. Native people have always tried to and resisted the efforts of government to remove them off their lands and um, to take those lands from them. So I think one of the big things about land back that we should all remember is that it it is like a very catchy phrase. It's something I use a lot. I have land back shirts. I really love love it but it's something that has been a part of native life and culture since colonization began native people never stopped resisting and never stopped resisting these efforts to remove them off their 
their places in the world. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. But the concept of land back has, um, and the, you know, the hashtag, hashtag land back has been used um, for the last maybe six years as a calling, which is great. And then in 2020, activists from the Indian Collective um, held a protest at Mount Rushmore and also drafted a land back manifesto that um, discusses the reclamation of everything stolen from the original peoples of this land. And so that's been a big movement that too, that Indian Collective has, has been working on. But land back also means like not just land, but it's also the preservation of languages and traditions, um, ensuring food sovereignty, housing, clean air and water, and also water back. Um, so water back is a big part of land back as well. So that's, that's something I, I try to remind my students of is that while these are uh, very important callings in the movement right now, that they're actually based in a long history of land reclamation and native rights that has existed for um, a very, very long time. I'm, you know, so happy that you, you know, raised that and, and are amplifying these long histories of Native resistance and the fact that as a concept, this is something that's been with us for some time. I, I love to often think about what I call like been known knowledge or been known practices and just um, because some of these practices or concepts might be um, coming up to the surface in more mainstream conversations or in, you know, Western or white dominated fields, it doesn't mean that these aren't practices or concepts that have just been known to so many groups and communities. So thank you for, for raising that. When you when you talk about uh, waterback, do you mind going a little deeper into that conversation of why we should uh, be avoiding kind of having the land back conversation without also thinking about its interconnectedness to water and waterback? I think about it a lot of times in terms of California. I mean, I'm situated in California, California and Oregon in the West actually because the West is so, right now we're going through a, what is it, like a 1,200 year horrible, like the worst drought that's been been since like 1,200 years, right? It's, it's bad. And so um, there's a lot of discussion about how water is allocated between different states in the American, and what is the known as the American West, right? Colorado, Arizona, um, Nevada, Washington, Oregon, um, New Mexico, you know, all, well, that's the Southwest, but you know, all of the, the regions that are dealing with these issues of water. Um, and California has like this long history of water allocation and water infrastructure that um, are removed from native lands to feed into different agricultural projects, both in Oregon and the Central Valley. Um, Owens Valley is a, a case of water being taken to the Los Angeles Water and Power District and that dispossessed um, Bishop Valley Paiute people from water and their ability to maintain their lands as they have for generations upon generations. So water back is a very important part of land back because it ends up that native people and tribes are the ones that tend to suffer from the removal of water from places that are deemed rural um, by state, federal, and private interests. 
um, and down into area, agricultural areas and metropolitans. So that has been ongoing since the onslaught of colonization in um, not just the American period, but the Spanish period as well. So there's like a very long history of water dispossession um, from tribes in the West, and especially in California, which is prone to drought. So that's a big call in, in the state, I think, for water back. And it's something that I've been involved in for since I was young, but in a more official capacity with the Save California Salmon, which I sit on the board of. So we can go into that. But I, I think that inherently with land back, you have to have water back tied to that because water is such an essential component to land. You can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. What are some challenges that face the land back movement as a concept and a practice? So one of the major challenges uh, to land back is the ownership of land, like who actually owns land and how that interacts with private interests, with federal and state government interests and tribal interests. So one of the uh, biggest things that I think we should remember is that 30% of the United States is owned by the United States government. So it's federal land. Um, and this land came into United States ownership through violence right? It's forced removal of Native peoples. It's um, the different eras of federal Indian law that served to disenfranchise Native peoples from their lands. And several events of which I'm not going to go into like the whole history of, but several events such as the 1862 Morrell Act, which establishes land granting institutions and universities, and the General Allotment Act of 1887, also called the Dawes Act, took about 90 million acres of Indian land that were taken out of Indian control. So Native people um, no longer controlled that 90 million after the uh, Dawes Act. So between 1887 to 1934, 60 million acres of quote unquote surplus land, um, Indian lands were then transferred and sold to non-Native peoples. So this is kind of the basis of where we're at in the United States today. In California, 40% of land is owned by the United States government. And that's pretty even between ownership of private interests and the federal government. So it's about like 50-50, give or take. But 3% of land is owned by the state of California itself. And in that, there's a strong adherence to uh, corporate capitalism that happens in California. So I'm thinking a lot about like corporate agriculture. Um, that has such a hold on the economy in the state itself. And also like land prices, housing prices, like it's very expensive to live in California, uh, just generally, like buying a house seems almost impossible. And land in and of itself then becomes very expensive. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that 40% of land is owned by the United States government here in the state. And that matters because in uh, March 2022, the Newsom administration establishes a fund for $100 million uh, to purchase and preserve 
uh, tribal ancestral lands. So it's a part of the governor's effort at truth and healing. In 2019, uh, Governor Newsom established an executive order apologizing for the violence against Native peoples in the state. And through that executive order set up the Truth and Healing Council. So this is an attempt by the Newsom administration to work towards the goals of that promise. And so through this $100 million, tribes can use the money to buy back land or address climate change and workforce development. But I think one of the main challenges that comes from that is that land isn't just given back, right? The state isn't just giving back the land, it is on the onus of the tribes to buy back surplus lands. And what constitutes surplus lands is not quite clear. Surplus are private property, so working with private property owners too. And so I think many Native people in California have questions about this program. Uh, chief Kalyan Sisk, who is um, the chief of the Winnemone-Wintu tribe, which is a non-federally recognized tribe in Northern California, expressed worry that non-federally recognized tribes might be left out of the process of this $100 million. There's a lot of questions about um, overlapping territories, who determines what territory is whose, how the state intends to work with tribes individually um, to return land. And as uh, Dr. Jolie Proudfoot, who is um, a professor at California State University San Marcos pointed out really aptly, is that $100 million is actually not that much money. And when you think about the cost of um, land here in California today, so I think there's a lot of questions about that and how that works. And I think a lot of tribal members in the state are rightfully saying, just give us our lands back without having these kind of mechanisms of forcing us to like go through these bureaucratic processes to buy back things that were stolen from us, right? So I think that's a really important point to remember. Though a lot of people do think it's a step in the right direction. Um, and I would also like to point out that a lot of this is from tribal advocacy. Uh, tribes have been pushing on the government, both federal and state local governments to uh, give lands back for a very long time, for generations upon generations. So I think that's an also an important point to make that this is a long ranging effort that tribes have been leaders of. And I, I think a lot too, when I think about the $100 million about the Dakota, Lakota and Dakota people and the Black Hills and how they were able to, the Supreme Court agreed that the Black Hills, which are sacred to that tribe, um, agreed that those lands were stolen through military force that the Treaty of Fort Laramie was um, violated and the Treaty of Fort Laramie guaranteed the undisturbed use and occupation of uh, land that included the Black Hills. So in 1980, the Supreme Court agrees with the Lakota, Nakota, Dakota, um, and then set aside $102 million for compensation. But the tribe never collects on it because what they say is that the payment is invalid because the land was never for sale and accepting the funds would be tantamount to sales transaction. And I think that's very powerful. It's like, you can't just throw money at tribes and expect that to solve 
these longstanding issues of um, violence and colonialism and stolen lands from Native people, because what we all have to face is that this land was violently taken through military force, through laws, um, and Native people have had to deal with this for a very long time. And so while I think that it's a good thing that, you know, the state of California is talking about this in the context of truth and healing, that throwing $100 million is just a drop in what actually should be done. So um, I really think that those types of efforts can be a challenge because really what we're asking for is the return of all our lands and the protection of our lands as well, which means stopping environmental destruction through you know, negative environmental policies like water uh, diversion that harms indigenous lands. So that's, that's what I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. Yeah, so thank you for that. You know, you're, you're mentioning what should actually be done. So do you mind getting into the weeds of that a bit and really walking us through the logistics and the bureaucracy that's involved with successful land back practices? Yeah, so actually in um, the Humbug Valley, the Maidu Summit Consortium, they um, and their Maidu a mountain Maidu native people and the consortium is made up of nine mountain Maidu tribes that are supported by nonprofit and grassroots organizations. And they're located in Plumas and Lassen counties. Um, they just had their land in Humboldt Valley returned um, from PG&E. And it was because of a 2003 bankruptcy settlement and PG&E agreed to permanently protect the beneficial public uses of 140 acres of watershed land that was associated with their hydroelectric generation, generation facilities. Um, so Humbug Valley was a part of that. And so the Maidu Summit Consortium worked and were able to uh, gain a parcel of the Humbug Valley parcel and have it in a conservation easement. And so that the California Public Utilities Commission approved the transfer in 2019. And the conservation easement um, guarantees that the land will be um, permanently protected for open space, plant and wildlife habitat, sustainable forestry, um, agricultural uses, outdoor recreation. Um, so that was a major success story that happened um, because of this uh, 2003 bankruptcy settlement, but it took a long time um, or relatively not a long time, about 17 years. But that has been very su successful and they've done a lot of work on meadow restoration in that um, area and to conserve that land using indigenous environmental techniques. And so that has been hugely successful for um, the Maidu Summits Consortium. So land back in California has definitely gained more traction in the state um, and mainly through conservation easements, which are voluntary legal agreements that permanently limit uses of land in order to protect conservation values. So um, a lot of tribes go through conservation easements to protect land. Um, so that's been a big success. And there's been a lot of, I think there's this narrative 
um, not just in California, but across the United States of that tribes aren't scientific or don't have science. Um, but a lot of what we have done on land management is based on traditional science and um, things that are supported by fisheries, uh, forest management um, agencies, you know, all of, all of those things that I guess would legitimize something in a Western culture, but are things that Native people have been doing since time immemorial never forgot. So like my tribe, we have fisheries um, departments that work to protect the fishing relatives um, in the river through biology and um, co-management with uh, agencies, federal and state agencies. So it's becoming more popular, I think, to do traditional ecological knowledge or tech um, and to recognize that Native people have like this scientific understanding and have always had that. Though so there is some pushback on that, I think, at times. Yeah, I mean, with PGE, we see, you know, um, a publicly traded company uh, do this type of return. Could you tell us a bit more about municipalities who's done that, like um, in Eureka and the, the return of Indian Island? Yeah, so um, Dulawa Island, um, which is the name of the, that the Weap tribe um, call it, or Indian Island as it was called, um, was returned to the Weap tribe in a historic ceremony. And so this is what why I um, mentioned like this far reaching history of land back. The Weop tribe started this process in the 1970s um, to return Dulawa Island. And Dulawa was the site of one of the worst massacres that occurred in Humboldt County on February 26, 1860, at the height of um, California Indian genocide. A group of uh, white settlers descended on the island while the Weop were in the midst of their world renewal ceremonies. And so, world renewal is um, occurs every year and it's the remaking of the world. Many of the tribes up in Humboldt County, including my own, um, do their own world renewal ceremonies and it's a very sacred and important time. Um, and 250 people, mostly women, children, elders were uh, massacred at the site. And so people remember this history, right? They remember that this occurred, um, never forgot it. And we had stories when I was growing up about the the people of Dulawat and you know this horrific violence that Native people um, endured in Humboldt County and across the state for you know you don't forget those things and because they become so ingrained in a part of your tribe's history and neighboring tribes history. So they began working with the city of Eureka for repatriating the island in, the in 1970. And in 2000, so a few decades later, through a series of fundraising, um, Indian taco sales, art auctions, uh, the tribe raised 100,000 to purchase 1.5 acres of the island from the city. Uh, that included the village site of Tulawat. So there's Dulawat, which is the island, and Tulawat, the village site. And then four years later, in 2004, um, the city gave the tribe another 40 acres of the island. 
And so over the years, um, the tribe secured various grants and oversaw the environmental cleanup of the island. There is toxic um, substances on the island that were left from a lumber mill that was there and a boat repair facility. And so they continue working with the city of Eureka to return another 202 acres of the island um, that gained traction in 2014. And then the city of Eureka and the mayor of Eureka at the time, um, Frank Yeager, apologized uh, for the massacre on the island and um, the role that uh, white settlers had in that massacre. And so there's this effort over the next four years after 2014 uh, to secure the whole island um, to the tribe and the Eure the city of Eureka declared the island surplus property so that the transfer of land could occur more easily to the Wiat. And then in 2019, and it took a while because there were administrative issues with the State Lands Commission and um, the title company that was overseeing the transfer. Um, but in 2019, the city gave back the remaining parts of the island and the tribe uh, got it back. I think it's important to note that these land back um, claims and repatriations of land are not always um, straightforward or easy. And it can take generations of people um, to get land back, but that didn't stop the Weeop tribe. And so they, they were able to secure their island back um, after many decades of working on it. Mm. Your discussion of kind of like these generational uh, resistances kind of brings me to a, a two-part closing question. So when we're thinking about future generations, you know, I know you just started in your new position at San Diego State, but how are you thinking about teaching this, um, these concepts um, to your, your students? You know, what kinds of examples might you be giving or class uh, discussions or projects that can help um, today's students kind of take this this concept from something that's just theory to practice and one to, to know generally what you kind of see as the future or hope for the future of land back. I think the hardest thing about teaching American Indian studies is that a lot of um, or teaching these concepts to students is that a lot of students come in without knowing anything about Native people. Um, and if they do know something about Native people, it's often through the lens of um, the vanishing Indian or that we don't exist on our lands anymore. And actually today I was just listening to a podcast, which I, you know, just like one of those history podcasts. And the person was talking about the Ohlone people um, and he like situated them in the past. And I think that is always something difficult to contend with as a, a teacher or a professor. It's like, you're always kind of contending with this narrative that we don't exist anymore, um, which is farthest thing from the truth, right? We, we've existed through this horrific violence and um, have continued this intergenerational fight. And so I, I always like to kind of situate Native people in the present and the contemporary and um, and go back into the history as well about how we got here. Something I ask my students is how do you get from 100% of a population to less than 2%? 
it's something very horrific that occurred um, that we have to contend with too as um, a nation and as a state. So that's, I, I try to introduce them and ease them into those conversations in that way. And to me, it's completely reasonable, right? Like I come from this community of people, Hoopa Valley and broadly, you know, California Indian people and native people generally, and then indigenous people around the world that have similar experiences um, and those experiences connect us together. And so I think a lot of what I try to do is just situate it that way, that we're contemporary people that live in a modern world um, and maintain, have maintained our traditions and our culture and our life ways, um, despite like this violence that occurred to us. And um, students, you know, I, I've been teaching on and off for the last like 10 years and students generally I find are very receptive to those ideas and to learning more about um, this history of Native America. And so that's made my job really fulfilling in a lot of ways. And also like I do this work, you know, I sit on the board of Save California Salmon. I use the um, knowledge that I have as a former state worker and somebody who was embedded in those institutions for a long time to help um, reclaim and push on policies uh, that don't serve us, but also to help um, celebrate those wins as well, because there are many wins in, in what we do. I think that answered the question. Yeah, yeah. And the last one would just be, you know, what do you see as the future of land back? Oh, I, I, I think that we will get our lands back. Um, and I think that the movement will grow and that Native people will reclaim their ancestral lands. Um, I, I have a lot of hope for that. I think our perspectives on land are needed now more than ever. I mean, they they've always been needed, but I think with the situation that we're in with climate change, um, that is very, very visible right now, um, with drought, which is very visible. I think that the solution needs to come from Native people and has come from Native people. And that doesn't mean, again, that means co-working with people too. You know, I, I see a future in which we reclaim our lands and we're able to live healthy lives for the benefit of everybody. It's not just us. Land back means everybody, I think. Um, and it means this interconnectedness with land that is not, not existed, existent today. And there are so many climate emergencies right now and so many things happening that are scary. I, I get scared actually every day reading the news about water drying up, about mega floods that are happening around the world. And I think what's becoming increasingly clear is that we can't continue allowing this to happen. And I really hope that it's not too late, but I don't think it is. I have to have hope. You know, I always tell my students, we survived this horrible thing, this genocide of our peoples. Um, and I think back on my own ancestors and what they survived, you know, they were hiding from the military, the US military state militias as they were hunting them down. Um, like literally hunting them down. And I think about them 
And I think about what they survived and what hope they must have had for the future. And I, I think I carry that same hope too. So I think that's what I see for the land back movement. That's beautiful. That's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Arona, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the CalAg Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. And by the way, if you subscribe and rate this show, it'll help other people discover it. Now, some important acknowledgments. This podcast was written by me, Dr. Caroline Collins, postdoctoral fellow at UC Irvine, affiliated researcher at UC San Diego, and CalAg Roots producer at the California Institute for Rural Studies. And it was edited by Lee Schmidt, associate storyteller and researcher at the California Institute for Rural Studies. The Well interview series was made possible with support from the 11th Hour Project at the Schmidt Family Foundation. And finally, special thanks to our interviewee for this episode, Dr. Brittany Arona of San Diego State University. Her deep knowledge helped us dig into this topic.